The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. This is Rugby Unwrapped, brought to you by The Spin-Off and Halo Sport. Welcome along everyone to episode three of Rugby Unwrapped. I'm Scotty Stevenson. Thanks to The Spin-Off and to Halo Sport for putting this on for us. What a great episode we've got lined up. Pleasure to welcome Sarah Hidini, captain of the Blackfern Sevens. Sarah, how are you, buddy? Yeah, not too bad, Sumo. Um, Obviously some good news today, which makes it a little bit more positive. Makes it very positive indeed. Conrad Smith joining us all the way from Pau in France. Uh, Conrad, great to have your company, mate. No, it's uh, it's all good here. We've um, not quite as good as it is in New Zealand, but we started the deconfinement as well. So, um, sending my daughter off to creche and my son goes to school tomorrow. So, uh, bit more bit more time on our hands, but uh, no, all good. Well, Conrad, we know that uh, there could be some issues being uh, so far around the globe, but we'll uh, keep you posted on those. TJ Pedinato, welcome back, mate. Great uh, insights from you in episode one. Really looking forward to your chat today and exciting news about being back on the training pitch pretty soon, mate. Kia ora, bro. Thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, man, uh, really good news going forward, I think. Just before this call, actually, I saw the schedule. Uh, got Blues first up on Sunday the 14th, so um, looking forward to, to getting prepared for that. It'll be good. And Simon Porter, back for episode three, Port's the CEO of Halo Sports. Uh, great to have your company. And today, guys, we, we wanted to chat about how rugby gets to where it's going. We've covered off where the game's at. In episode two, we looked at some of the direction rugby's taking, especially at a professional level, around what's expected of the players and the fans. And, and today was a chance, really, to talk to the players, both current and, and in Conrad's case, only just past, about how you guys are all taking responsorship in the leadership position and where the game is going. And, and I think, TJ, if I can come to you first, how do players feel currently about the business of rugby and, and how they can help to strengthen it in the coming months? I, th- I think everyone's actually pretty positive about it. Like, I know the discussions uh, in the circles that I've been in, um, we're probably we're going to be defined uh, when, we, when we all finish and the, someone else is uh, in our seat and um, playing the game we love. Uh, they'll look back on what we did at this point um, and really it'll really shape where the game ends up in 10, 15, 20 years' time. So it's a really good challenge to have. Um, I think us as players, if we can do a really good job here, come out and play some really good footy and um, put the game before ourselves for a little bit here, uh, we give the next generation of players a really good opportunity to to carry things on for a long period of time. If we If we don't, and then we can hurt the game. So for us, it's, a, it's an exciting opportunity to, like I say, go out there, play some exciting footy and uh, put the game for ourselves. Sarah, in many ways, that sounds exactly what the Black Ferns have done for years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree I'm completely with what TJ's saying. And 
we're obviously in a, in a vital position to help our game at the moment and, and uh, completely different circumstances to what we're probably used to. But it's, it's such a great challenge that we have. And I think that we've got, um, like, like you said, a massive opportunity to actually create um, probably some better competitions that we might not have have um, been able to do in the past because everything just c- continues to flow. But now we've, we're able to maybe even start some new competitions, which is uh, massively exciting for our game as well. Conrad, you're up there with a, a French top 14 club and a very respected one too. So you've seen rugby at super rugby level, provincial rugby level, World Cup level uh, with the All Blacks. And, and now you're into a competition in a very different part of the world. What is the mood like in, in French rugby right now from your perspective about where the game is at and the problems it faces? Yeah, I, I, th- I think we're not... F- uh, probably, you know, the country itself um, and rugby follows it is not quite at the stage that New Zealand's at. So we're, we're quite envious of the, the fact that rugby's going to be played in New Zealand and there's probably not the same level of optimism, to be honest, at, at yet about the future of rugby. Um, they've pencilled in a... Uh, a start date for next season of September, just to to, to re, you know they've given up on the season and now hoping to restart in September. But but even that date, you know the prime minister and at government level they've come out and said that that might not be realistic. And um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of eager anticipation around seeing how Super Rugby goes, and you know hopefully that goes well, and then you know it can sort of feed on to some. Uh, to some more optimism around, um, you know, the likelihood of things starting up here and, you know, in a couple of months. When you listen to TJ and Sarah speak, uh, Conrad, do you do you think, well, if I was in that position, that's exactly the stance I'd be taking as well? Yeah, for sure. And, and to be honest, like the players up here, that they're very, you know, they're ready to train again. You know, they've been hanging out to to come together, and and that's not going to happen still for a couple more weeks. But um, you know, there, there's certainly a good feeling around um, the players. You know, that they want to play, whatever it means. You know, they'll take a pay cut. They'll play in different competitions. They'll play in empty stadiums if they have to. But um, you know, the, the, and it's similar. You know, I, I know players around the world. They're all. Um, we're all, you know, it doesn't matter what country they're in, they're made of the same stuff, they, they're competitive, they, they want to get out there and um, if it helps the game, then, you know, they'll do whatever it takes. Ports, this is your market. These uh, players that you represent, uh, not just in New Zealand, but around the world, in Japan and France and England, elsewhere, uh, surely from a player management point of view, this would be the most trying time in your career, what do you make of the response from your players and, and from players in general so far through this? Yeah, well, undoubtedly, <coughs> it's been the um, yeah the most trying time is a good way to, to put it. It's just been so uncertain, and I think the the hardest thing has been. And I've talked to you know Warren Alcock, who a lot of these people, well, these guys will know, and, and people will know, and and he's been doing this a, a bit longer than me, and, and we both just reflect that we've just never seen anything like this at all, and, and the real difficulty is the uncertainty. Um, you know, people come to us and they expect certainty, and we just can't give it to people at the moment. We can run through scenarios, we can do whatever, but, you know, we're supposed to have the answers, and we just don't have the answers at the moment. It's um, It's disconcerting at times, but you just have to make do, and in, the, in terms of the player's attitude, um, I think without doubt everyone's been understanding. It's human nature um, to just to, to soldier on. And I think, you know, professional sport has been very hard hit, but 
um, I think there are so many examples of other industries or other people or whatever who are way more impacted than um, sport at the end of the day. You know, people who are, you know, effectively risking their lives, etc. And that is a common theme that comes through from the players as well. Everyone acknowledges that. They see that. Um, but... You know, rugby players in the main are very optimistic and everyone just wants to play. They're chomping at the bit, so it's quite easy, you know, growth mindset, all that sort of stuff, where they're always looking for the next thing. So um, I think they're coping pretty well with it. Coping is uh, one of the themes that that I'd love to touch on. We could be stuck talking about the COVID-19 crisis and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But while we're making positive moves in New Zealand, at least, TJ, I wanted to broaden this discussion out to be more about the players in general, even without COVID hitting. What are the pressures that are currently endured by the players, both physical and mental in our game? And and do we do enough by way of that pastoral care to make sure that our players at all levels are given the support they need? Because it's a tough job. Um. It is a, it is a high pressure job. Um, It's fun. Like you look up to it and, I've always wanted to be a footy player and been given the opportunity to to do that for a living. It's, um, it's a very privileged privileged position to be in. And um, what they don't teach you is, like talking about the added pressures that do come with it, it's a, it is a high workload. Um, you're on the go all year round. And I personally believe that uh, all footy players should be ready to go and play every weekend of the year, regardless of if it's your off-season or if it's not, because um, that's part of our job. Our job is to be ready to play. So there's one pressure. There's that pressure mm-hmm. of, trying that needing to be in condition all year round the uh, yeah I'm going on holiday with my family but part of that holiday is my prep to being in, in that next season so there's that pressure but the pressure that I think um, that we miss a little bit to educate people on especially young kids coming into the game is the social media pressure and the pressure from um, from media itself so there's a lot of um, so you see a young kid coming into the game with high um, potential um, a lot of people will boost that kid up. They'll say he's awesome. People on social media will put, make, uh, make these comments that they're awesome. Media will do the same thing. And as soon as that kid does something wrong or plays poorly, those exact same people will bring that kid back down. So there's no real education on that and how to deal with that. It's, it's very tough because the young kids coming into those situations. Um, but that is another pressure that people don't think of. Um, and especially the people who are saying those things don't think of. So, it's a, it's a two-way street there. I think there needs to be education on the people say, for the people saying it, but then for these kids that are coming into the game on how to deal with it and um, I guess how to not hear it is probably the, the easiest way. But, yeah, there's, that, that's where I think a lot of work needs to be done into preparing people for, for that side of things. It's a two-way street, though, isn't it? Because uh, players want to engage with their own fans personally, whether that's uh, because of endorsements, marketing opportunities, just because they want to have a conversation with the people who follow them in the sport. So um, sometimes when you dance with the devil, uh, you get burned. And, and you know, so we, we know we live in an age where social media is huge in professional sport and across society, full stop, people are engaging in these platforms. Sarah, I know the Black Ferns, you and your teammates and a lot of uh, the women in our game uh, are very big in terms of the use of social media as a platform. Um, Do you find that that comes with pitfalls as well or largely is the criticism directed at the men, not at our women's players? Yeah, I think exactly that around the education around social media is a big part and it's kind of hard to uh, get education on something that we actually don't know. Um, And especially in New Zealand, it is so... Um, it's so different to the rest of the the rest of our game, and 
if, if you look at it in a, I suppose for me as a sevens player and a, and a woman's sevens player, our game, our, our girls in our game are getting younger and younger. Um, now you're, we're seeing girls get picked straight out of school, um, which is a lot different, obviously, to how we came into the sport. So they, first of all, don't, uh, they're young, they um, don't even know who they are, let alone then have to conduct themselves on such a wide level. And, and it's a hard one because with, uh, I suppose, women's sport, we, we actually have to leverage off social media to not just create a following, but um, create a following, not individually, but for our for our sport, uh, for women's sport, for the Blackfern Sevens. And that's a, that's a big part of our game. So it is challenging because you want these kids to... We, we, we want to be normal, but then we also want them to then promote themselves and promote the Blackfin Sevens on a social media platform. And, and that's quite hard. But I think the critic- we haven't had a lot of criticism in, in women's sport, especially the Blackfin Sevens. So uh, we are quite lucky in that sense. But um, but I still find that in New Zealand especially that we do get Torpoffrey syndrome and um, a lot of our men's players are, are criticised. And I, and I don't think that that's it's pretty tough on them, and especially when you're 18, 19 years old. Conrad, your career kind of uh, was a transition period between uh, boys finishing a game, sitting around and talking about the game and having a beer and uh, most of the team sitting on their phones talking to uh, 10,000 strangers. Um, did you notice the rise of, of social media and, and devices among your teammates? Yeah, for sure. It, it was, um, and it's interesting just hearing, you know, the, the chat now because, um, you know, the point's been made social media dealing with that it wasn't edu- it hasn't been educated to the players because it you know it hasn't been around that long and um it's it's new and 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 for me I, I suppose I straight away maybe it's my nature but I straight away saw maybe the threat and the danger of it and and so I've never gone near it but I, I think I was about the only one in the rugby world that didn't. So, um, you know, and, and I could see the problems that, that, you know, TJ and Sarah are talking about and, um, you know, they've come to pass. And so that's why now rugby, maybe we've been a bit slow. Who knows? I've, um, you know, but, but now there is, I think, a lot more help in that area. More help can off, obviously be offered, but it, it requires education on everyone's part. And I think it's still really being understood um, even now, and um, and and now, you know, like the everyone's been saying, it's 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 a it's a job for the people and you know that work with these players and work with um, New Zealand rugby, and I suppose it applies all around the world to 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 help, um, especially the young guys and girls get into the game and, and to deal to deal with this part of it. One thing that's certainly opened up through the power of social media, certainly through the power of of a globalised communications world, is that. Players here have been able to see rugby in other parts of the world and have been attracted to go to those other parts of the world and, and Ports, you've facilitated a lot of that player movement. I, I wanted to talk about uh, the lure of the black jersey. We, we hear it all the time uh, in a New Zealand context that our players stay here because the lure of the jersey is so strong. But we do see an ever-growing shift in mindset that this is a profession and that surely as individuals you should be getting the best market value for your skills as anyone else in any profession would get. Ports, first of all, if I can come to you and just ask you, what is the size, the scale of the global player market before COVID and after? Yeah, well, I mean, if you just think about at the top level, there's probably 20 clubs in Japan um, that have big budgets, when I say big budgets, I mean budgets that there is enough money to 
lure guys away from playing in New Zealand, um, and they're all they'll all have about fifty players in those squads. Not all of them professional, but you know more more or less. And then top fourteen up with um, Conrad, uh, and then the pro leagues twelve teams and the premierships. 12 teams as well, I think. So, you know, that's well, however many 50-odd teams around the world. And then you've got the emergence of the USA um, and, and the South American League, which didn't didn't quite get off the ground and that sort of stuff. Like, it is, I mean, it, it, it's bigger than New Zealand everywhere else because we've really only got five full-time professional teams. But in France, you've got, you know, as I said, 14, etc. cetera. So, um, and the salary caps were going up and up. Um, you know, there was... You know, the, the player salaries have gone up. Um, Post-COVID, they will come down. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Um, already it was harder to um, get into places. Well, in my time, I've seen the overseas playing numbers, or the foreign players drop as uh, France has made a real move to uh, contract French players. Uh, UK and Ireland changed their rules a while back as well to incentivise teams to make sure they had local talent. And that's what we'll see. Um, we will see that just getting harder to get in. And also, I just don't anticipate seeing the same amount of money in the game. So, um, you know, the guys who do give up playing down here because um, of the, the the money that's on offer overseas it just won't it just won't be the same guys still do over for to do something different or to maintain levels of income or you know to, to give their family experience overseas but it's definitely going to shrink the lure of the black jersey TJ is it strong is it everything that people say it is um, for a big part yep I, I do think it is there's um, like me, for example, I'll just speak on my behalf. It's definitely there. When you're a young kid and you're growing up, you don't care about the money. You don't care about anything else like that. You just want to play for the All Blacks. And I genuinely believe that that is 100% still there. You've still got people. Um, and it's probably driven from their parents being, when they're um, in a cot saying, oh, they're going to be an All Black one day. They're going to be an All Black one day. So that's all they hear. And so that drive is definitely still there. I think where it... Um, where it changes, and I'm not saying that the the lure is not there as much, but where the competition comes in with the black jersey is when you get to a certain age, and um, I, I guess your priorities might change. Where, like, I'll again refer to myself, like having a kid um, on the way, having a wife um, at home, and being an all black actually takes you away from home for a very long period of time. You play Super Rugby throughout the year, you travel South Africa, you're away every other weekend um, playing against either a New Zealand Super Rugby team or an Australian team. Then if you play for the All Blacks, you're away for that three-week period in June, July. Um, for that time, then you go to the Rugby Championship, then you're on the NDU Tour. And weighing up, playing for the All Blacks, and it's not always competing with money in that sense, it's time with my family. That's the big decision, and that's where um, I think it's not that the lure is like worse or like it's less it's just that there's more competition because priorities in people's lives um tend to change i guess for the black ferns especially uh the sevens uh sarah the the fact is it's one and the same the black ferns is the professional team uh so if you want to get paid to play the game and wear the black jersey it's the it's the perfect scenario but there's only one of them yeah, that's it. We, we don't have the luxury of having all these other competitions and all these um, different lures. But but like TJ said, it, it do, there will come a time when, um, especially in the sevens environment, we travel so much um, of the year. We're away constantly. Um, and there will uh, hopefully come a time where, 
you either choose between 15s or 7s um, and then looking at the even the, some of the professional teams in Japan at the moment um, and the amount of Kiwis who miss out on playing for that black jersey have actually gone over to Japan to play um, in a fully professional environment so it's, it's awesome that I hope that there that challenge does come in the women's game because it just means that our game's getting bigger globally and, and in New Zealand as well. The, the routine that you spoke about, TJ, um, I, I know how much of a grind it must be. You do spend an awful lot of time on the road. Conrad, uh, you've been through all of this, um, so you know only too well the pressures of the constant travel, the constant moving. That routine, uh, how much of a drag does that become the longer you stay in the professional game? It's tough. Like it's um, just like TJ said. Like I, um, it, it's funny. You, you start and the, the travel and even hotels and things like that. Some the highlight of of playing footy, and then you know how very quickly it becomes suddenly something you put up with, and then something you just you. you the one thing you, you wish you didn't have to do, you know, and, and it's um, always obviously when you're talking about playing for the All Blacks, it's like, oh, um, you know, of course you're happy to travel around the world to get the chance. You know, you pull on the jersey and it feels all worthwhile. But, um, you know, it's it's life. You you start, like TJ said, priorities change and um, suddenly it's, it's not as if the, 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 the uniqueness and specialness of pulling on the jersey diminishes but it's suddenly there's other things that weigh more and more and, and suddenly the, the decision's harder so you know and, and that's where everyone's individual you, you come to that decision and um, the all black jersey's still massive it's a it's it's a, you know it's, it's such a, a special thing for, for New Zealand rugby and they do a really well a great job of, of looking after that and protecting it but um you know that the world is what it is, and and there's always going to be um, opportunities for for players elsewhere. And um, look, it's not a bad thing. And I think um, New Zealand rugby's done a really good job up until now. And now they've got some new challenges, but um, I'm sure they've got people there to 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 you know think think of new ways to um, to take those head on. I'm glad you brought up the word individual because if, if we consider that our conversation so far has been rather positional, that's kind of where we're at, uh, I wanted to move into the potential now. Uh, and TJ, I know that in many ways you and your teammate Artie Savir are, are really leading the charge on this, but should the individual be more celebrated in what is a unique team sport? Can individuals derive value in their individual work that doesn't impinge on the team and the benefits that the team should derive? In what sense do you mean? So, so outside of the game, you mean? Or yeah, I think just in so many sports, we have, for want of a better term, superstars. Uh, in team sports, we all know that there are stars, and there are individuals within those teams who are off on their own direction. They turn up for game time. Absolutely, they're part of the team, but we all know they're not quite. There's something special about them. Rugby, as we've spoken about in episodes one and two, tends to be very team first. So the ability for an individual to go out there and, and star as an individual uh, outside of the white lines can be quite difficult. So how do you find the balance? Um, but I, I think there's massive growth in this exact area um, for, for rugby, uh, especially in New Zealand rugby. I think if you look at the NBA, for example, um, LeBron James is his own brand within the brand of the NBA and probably bigger to it for, for an argument there, there's an argument for that but 
the way that he portrays himself as an individual, the way he does business as an individual and, and his own brand as LeBron James creates so much more value for the NBA because people want to see LeBron James do what LeBron James does with his um, I Promise School. You have people who don't even like the NBA or like basketball support LeBron James because of that, which now brings more attention to the game of basketball, which grows basketball. And that's like, I think someone in, um, in New Zealand rugby who's doing it well, but still I feel like it could be done way better if there wasn't as many, um, I don't want to say restrictions, but the, the right word is guidelines probably. Mm-hmm. Um, Artie's one of them and Baz is one of them who do, who do it exceptionally well. And you look at Baz, for example, on the stuff he's doing on his social through, I don't know, his, like Red Bull. That's bringing all of these people who support uh, like X Games and that a part of Red Bull. Now they know Bowden Barrett, who's a rugby player. It just opens their scope to um, to rugby, if you know what I mean. So I think if we can work together in this part, and I know it's going to be hard because there's brands, brand association with the New Zealand rugby, and I definitely understand that, and that's what we need to do because those brands help keep our game alive. But if we can work to, a, um, I guess, an agreement where we're trying to build those individual brands outside of the game that, as a byproduct, build the game itself, I think is a good thing. And it kind of leads me into talking about uh, the women's program, Sarah, because uh, we have a lot of sponsorship models at New Zealand Rugby where if you are a sponsor of New Zealand Rugby, you get everything. Uh, sponsor the All Blacks and we'll chip in the Black Ferns and the Sevens and uh, the Māori All Blacks as well. Is there an argument to say that you would like to see women's rugby carved off, that the sponsors who really want to focus on women's rugby can have a greater opportunity to invest solely in women's rugby if that is where they want to put their money? Yeah, like, don't get me wrong, I, I've i loved being able to, um, I suppose, not um, be a part of, like, the All Blacks brand. And, like, without the All Blacks, let's be honest, we, us as a women's game, wouldn't have a lot. And the, and that's just facts. Um, and, and I've been very grateful that we are able to have such a, an amazing great brand to build off. But I think if we are going to build the women's game, then we need to, um, us as players, uh, us as New Zealand Rugby or the Players Association, whoever it is, we need its own entity. And that doesn't mean that we need to branch off and become its own business, but we have to be able to, I suppose, stand on our own two feet if we're going to be able to make it um, make it its own its own thing. And um, and, it, and it's been great. Like, I think the way that it's going, it's, it's going up and, it, and it's rising, but... I think it has taken a very long time to do that. And we've, I've been in the game um, for, for eight to nine years now and it has been really slow. Um, like, I, like the difference between eight years ago has been extreme, but it's still taken its time. And I think that it could grow a lot more rapidly if we were able to um, potentially, like I said, stand on our own two feet and maybe do it that way. Does the individual become distracting? Conrad, you played with one of the great walking billboards, Dan Carter, who's, um, you know, loves a Brita brand association of his own. Do, do the guys who, who pursue individual brands or their own brand, do they in any way become a distraction for a team? No, not at all. No, not if, you know, your, your team should be built around, you know, bigger things than the individual. So, you know, Dan Dan's a classic example. Like, obviously he did his thing, but mate, you'd never find a guy more dedicated to the team and who always put the team first. And I think the All Blacks have been really lucky, um, you know, with the, the fact that our individual stars, the Richie McCaws, Carter, you know, now 
TJ Bodie, these guys that that have an individual brand are still very much team players, and so that's um, and that's what what holds New Zealand rugby in, in such good stead. But um, just to to go to back to TJ and, and even what Sarah's saying, this is a massive area for rugby, and it's not just in New Zealand; it's in world rugby. And you know, some of the discussions I've been a part of in more recent times with world rugby, you know, trying to. Get them because when you first present it, it's very anti-establishment. Huh? It's very against the culture of rugby, and, and so to get people that have worked with rugby a long time to understand the value of the individual, it's, it's hard. And you know, and even for me, it, it took somewhat like guy Blaine Scully, who's a player from the US, who's recently retired, but he, he comes from that market, and he was able to say exactly the same thing TJ saying, just that you know you've got LeBron James doing these things in America for American sport and the th- what he brings to the game far outweighs any, any downside of, oh, you know, he's, he's going to take it away from the game. It's not like that at all. And I know World Rugby are starting to look at that and they have to, you know, you, when you look at the World Cup and how little the players are allowed to promote that event because of the strict, strict, you know, regulations and restrictions compared to what it could be with individuals, you know, tweeting whatever they want to tweet and, building a whole market like that it's um you know and then that's what's going to have to happen in the years to come and um you know I, I don't know what it's going to look like I'm probably the wrong person to ask but um I, I know there's 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 a lot of um room for you know growth in that area and um and, and I'm sure it'll happen what what has been your role so far with world rugby from a from a player representative point of view Conrad so I'm, I'm still I'm working with the International Players Association and um, so, you know, I've sort of taken that a, a bit further since I've been here in France, closer, they're based in Dublin um, and, you know, they've, they've, they have, uh, they obviously represent all the player associations, they try and unify them a little bit if there's common themes, but also um, on international issues, particularly around the World Cup. We're, we're the sort of acting voice for the players and um, it's been really interesting for me. It's, uh, it's, it's been interesting the last few months because obviously we've had a election um, at World Rugby uh, level and we've had Bill Beaumont and Gus Pichot and, and, you know, they've been running against each other and part of their campaigns was talking with us and promising, you know, a, a far greater partnership with the, with the players and... You know, now that's come to, you know, they've had the election and Bill's won it, so it's going to be interesting to, to see how he delivers because there were some pretty big promises that were made to, to players. And, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time, I think, for the, for the game. Is some of that about owning the game? Uh, and, and what do you guys feel, uh, Sarah, what, what do you guys feel about the stake you have currently in the game? Do you feel like you have enough ownership of the direction of rugby? I think for a, for a part of it, yeah, and especially if I talk about um, rugby in New Zealand, um, like right from the get-go, uh, we've been involved in conversations about our game. Uh, we're constantly on calls with Rob Nicholl. I think he is actually a big part of us being involved um, because he will stand up for us for, for pretty much anything that, that the game or us players need. And so I've been fortunate enough to work a, a lot with him. But I think in a world rugby sense... Um, like I, I don't think that player's voice is there enough, and I think that that's probably something that we need to grow um, as much as we can to, because at the end of the day, we're the ones who are playing it, we're the ones who um, are going through the scenarios that they're obviously making decisions on. So I think it's pretty important that 
players do get that voice and that that's um, seat at the table. Brendan Schwab from World Players, which uh, is a body that represents 85,000 athletes in professional sports around the world, has come out today and said, look, uh, COVID poses significant risks to professional athletes uh, given uh, the symptoms and and some of the uh, problems it can cause. Uh, And there is talk of, you know, being put at risk. TJ, you guys are being asked to go back to work, basically, at at an, an amazing time. Have you guys felt uh, canvassed enough in terms of what the risks are, how you mitigate them, and do you all feel safe about returning to play at a time like this? Uh, We haven't been given the the details on how trainings and that are going to look. I think we have Zoom calls over the next couple of days um, on that. My initial reaction to it, um, I I was nervous. I just feel um, opening up and playing the game, you you create so many more bubbles that now have extended. So me playing against Riggs, for example, at the Blues, I've opened up to him by coming into contact with him. Therefore, our families are coming into contact and stuff like that. So um, I don't know how that's like, what's going to be the regulations behind it. Um, but my initial my initial reaction was I, wa- I was a little bit nervous about it. Um, I- I'm confident that we'll do the right things and make sure that um, all the, the right procedures are in place before we go out on the field and play together or even train together. Um, so yeah, over the next few days, I hope we get a little bit more detail on that. I'm, I just want to go back to a point that um, uh, Sarah made about the women's game and going and standing on their own two feet because I completely agree, but I know people will watch this and they'll be like, okay, well, don't have any association with the All Blacks, don't do any of that, where I think that's stupid and I think it's wrong because I feel like um, the Black Ferns, and I'm a massive advocate for it as well, can stand on their own two feet and can do um, be their own, um, I guess, uh, is it, I think, Entity? Entity is the right word, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, there, with the backing of the All Blacks, with the backing of New Zealand Rugby Union, I think it, that you can do both. And a lot of people will say, if you want to go and stand on your own two feet, okay, you get no help here. Where I, I genuinely believe, as, as the All Blacks and as New Zealand Rugby Union, we should be wanting the Blackburns and wanting the Blackburn 7 stand to be standing on their own two feet. But assisting that and really pushing that and helping that, you know, that's, um, that's just something I wanted to touch on before we moved on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny for me, TJ. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, what always comes before any story about a Blackfern's rugby player, especially at 15s, is, uh, is what she does for a job. And and it's almost like we're, we, we sell boys the dream of rugby and we sell our girls the fight. And, uh, you know, and you, you sometimes I understand that the All Blacks can't prop up everything. They're already responsible for the vast majority of revenues in this game. But it, it seems to me like... Every time we take a step forward for women's rugby, we take a step back. Uh, Sarah, you see these stories all the time, and they invariably start with, here's Charmaine Smith. She's a policewoman. But at what, at what point do we get, here's Charmaine Smith, the professional rugby player? Oh, I just want to appreciate TJ and, you, and uh, what you say about our game. Like You're a massive advocate for, for the Black Ferns and the women's game in general, and without people like you, like, um, like we appreciate that support massively, so uh, it definitely doesn't go unnoticed in our game. Um, in terms of like what you said, Tumo, it's actually quite crazy whenever you, you get asked what you do, even for us Blackfin Sevens players, and um, and I say, oh, I play rugby for a living. And they say, oh, no, but what do you do to make money? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what I do. And like the amount of people that actually can't believe that you, you do that for a living and um, then they will will ask three or four times, no, but what do you do for a living? And I just have sometimes have to walk away because 
uh, like I actually want it to a point where I can show my niece that this is what I did for a living that I got paid to do this and just because you're a female it actually doesn't matter and there shouldn't be a stereotype that um like I want young girls to when they um, are born that their parents want them to be a black fern like that's the same the same as what what an all black is and when you have a son or whatever that like that so I, I hope one day it's the same Creating those opportunities, you touched on it earlier, Sarah, about creating events for women, and uh, and it's just the same in the men's game. In episode two, Bart Campbell, a newly appointed New Zealand rugby board member, talked about the, the fact that we need to market our game better. We need to be thinking about the experience for the fans, what a test match occasion actually means. Uh, Simon uh, mentioned Conrad uh, about his experiences with you up in the French top league, and uh, and how that worked, you know, and how those games are staged. Have you noticed a big difference in the atmosphere between what a traditional super rugby game was in New Zealand and, and what a top 14 game is like in France? Yeah, it's um, something you sort of notice the first time you arrive at a game an hour before kickoff. And literally, like, this is, um, you know, every game I played, Bus would arrive hour and a half probably before a kickoff. Walk out to, you know, a thousands line tunnel, you know, in, into your changing room. Um, you know, I hadn't seen that many fans in the, the last home game I played a Super Rugby, and this is uh, a game hadn't even started. So it was, um, it, it's it's you know, like I say, it, you notice it straight away, and um, and yeah, the French do it. They do it very well, and it's. And it's interesting because it's all it's all very localised. It's a lot of the conversations that I'm hearing now from New Zealand because you know you're obviously going back to this um, uh, Super Rugby with the New Zealand and, and using the, the local derbies. And um, the thing is, you know, France it's, it's a population base, though. You know, you, you're talking about millions and millions of people across these regions, and, and New Zealand's a Look, you know, love it to death, but five million. Whether you're going to get the numbers to support that for a, you know, for a sustained amount of time, look, I, look, I'd love it to happen. I'd absolutely love it to happen. And um, you know, I, I played in the NPC era where we filled the stadium in a round robin game. Um, so you know, I, I think it can be done, but it's, you know, there's there's a lot that remains to be seen. Up, but um, that, that's something that's going to be really interesting, and just seeing how how the public, even even in France, I know the questions are being asked. How, how everyone's going to respond and whether we're going to get the crowds back straight away, how long it's going to take. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating time. It's all that stuff around the game, though, isn't it? Uh, and that's what we, we discussed in the last episode, TJ. It's, it's the festival nature of some of these games. When you go and play a test match up north uh, against Wales or against England or against France, for that matter, you know it's a very different atmosphere to, to what happens here in this part of the world. Do you guys sometimes think, oh, we wish we could have something a little bit different. We wish there was a different atmosphere, a different experience for us and our fans. Um, yeah, I, I definitely do. Don't, don't get me wrong, I love playing at home. I love playing in front of our fans and stuff like that, but it is completely different. And we're on the receiving end of that other atmosphere uh, when we play in France or we play in England or we play in South Africa. It's not like we're getting all the support there. We're getting hammered. Um, but it's still like an awesome atmosphere to be a part of. And it's um, like you do the hucker at... Um, Twickenham, for example, and I can't hear the boys, or the boys can't hear me leading the hucker. That that's what it's like, and it's um, it, yeah, it is just different. It's an event. I, I've spoken to a lot of um, people over there and fans in there, and they're not just going for the game; they're going for 
um, to have a few beers before the game with their friends outside because um, they have like um, like carts and that all set up. So it, it's an event that they go for, not just the game of rugby, where I think um, you sort of talked about marketing just before. Mm. We market the game of rugby and we do it well, but we don't market the experience of going to a rugby game as more than the 80 minutes that you get out on the field, which is um, you get all sport around the world. You go to an NBA game, it's a whole experience, not just the, the game, you know, and that's where we could grow. Yeah, I agree with Sarah. You're so used to it because a sevens event is a is a festival. So you know that your 14 minutes on the field is part of something much, much bigger. Um, but again, there's probably room within the sevens program to adapt and change as well and to make sure that these festivals are attracting uh, not just a traditional crowd, but an expanded crowd. Have you guys put a lot of thought into how you would market yourselves in the context of the event you're putting on? Well, that's a, it starts with an event. It's not just a, a game or, or a tournament or a few games. It's actually a, a massive event. And when, you, when you're able to sell it like that, you're able to incorporate so many different, um, different things that, that are involved. So in terms of the, the Sevens game, I think um, as a marketing point of view, we, we're, we're marketed so um, like uh, across the world and we play globally and we play in all these different um, countries, but we actually don't really then get to play in New Zealand and we are not marketed at, really at all until we played in, in Hamilton this year in New Zealand. And that's like, a, I think as a as a game and as a team, it's quite difficult to then um, become relatable to people in New Zealand. Um, we obviously are not able to create those connections that other, I suppose, um, other teams get to have if they do then have fans in New Zealand. And I think this COVID thing actually might get us to do that. We might be able to have a domestic comp where we play in, um, maybe not in front of fans, but at least um, maybe grow it maybe in the next couple of years where we get to play in front of New Zealanders. And I think that's actually a really positive for us. We're able to then... um, like create, like I said, those connections and those relationships with, with people here in New Zealand, which we don't get to do. A couple of notes on while we're talking about the events and, and the marketing of those events, we, we keep hearing talk about a global calendar, uh, about trying to come up with meaningful test match seasons and years outside of Rugby World Cup. TJ, what about the current player workload? I mean, how close to the edge are some of our senior players and how many minutes on the field are expected from them and commitments outside of the playing of the game too. So if we are close to the edge, does something like a global calendar really stack up from a player point of view? Um, I'm probably a little bit different to, to some people on, on my views on this. Like I, I love the game and I, I love playing it. So my workload on the field, I don't mind too much how much that increases because I know I've got such a short um, time span in this game so one day it's going to be all over and I'm not going to be able to run out on the field and stuff like that so um, I get the player welfare and trying to have longevity and stuff but I, I want to play footy what's the tough bit I think is we touched on it earlier the, the travelling side of it will be the bit that would um, would weigh me down um, more than anything not the not the playing the games it's the workload outside of the games itself I think is something that um, for me personally and for a lot of players that I know would be the, the hardest bit with it. Um, but then there'll be people on the flip side who would say the workload on the field is. So there needs to be that balance. We need to get that right. But I think anything for the game, to make the game better, um, to help grow the game, I think is something we should be doing. You're and all forms of the game too, not just yeah. the, the top tier teams, the tier one teams. 
if we're going to go into that global um, competition or whatever it is, I think we need to have tier two teams here too. Like you look at the Pacific Islands, they helped so many different teams in the world. And it's not just New Zealand or Australia, it's France, it's England, it's Wales, it's all of those teams. We need to be incorporating those teams too. It's something that you guys have obviously spent a lot of time discussing, Conrad, uh, from an international rugby player's point of view. Uh, you spoke about Bill Beaumont's selection. You spoke about promises made. Is this going to take a lot of your time in the coming months trying to work through some kind of globalised structure? Yeah, and, and it's, um, you know, TJ's touched on a couple of interesting points because this is the, the difficult thing when you're trying to, um, you know, bring a united player voice. There, there's, there's very different, you know, the way players are looked after in New Zealand is, is very good. You know, the workload balance, they've got a pretty good. And then you come up north and in Ireland, they, they do it really well. Um, but then, you know, you get to France and England and that's where the player workload comes about. And, it, and it's not always number of games. It's the chopping and changing between an international and club season. You know, it's a nightmare. For I, I didn't truly appreciate it till I came up here and saw how crazy it was that, you know, that they go into their, with their, like, in New Zealand, it, it's amazing. You know, you play Hurricane for four or five months, you go play All Blacks four or five months, you have a couple of months off, it's perfect. But for these guys, you know, to go back and forth and then sort of get missed out on a holiday because of the, which, you know, and, and that's just if you're lucky if you're in the French squad. If you're a Fijian player going down to play for Fiji and then coming back to play club, doing that two or three times a year, it's, um, it's mad. But, um, look, there is a lot of conversations around this and, and I actually think, you know, that, a solution might not be too far away, and and I I think um, you know it'll take a lot of work. Maybe this pandemic's provided the opportunity, and look, I, I think all we're after, and it ties in with what we're talking about marketing. Like if we can market the game and have a club competition and an international season, that's just easier to understand. Then we're going to open up a market because at the moment. You know, for we we know it. we're Kiwis. We know when internationals are on. We know the Six Nations. But anyone else, it's a, it's a, you know, there's madness. There's games going on all the time. There's club competitions with no, um, you know, uniformity. It, it's it's very hard to follow to to someone in the Asian market. So this is um, all, all about. It's not going to add more games. Um, you know, so some of the models I've seen are just it's just smart. It's just moving things around. It's going to require a bit of compromise. But um, you know, I, I think we could end up with, um, you know, something that does grow the game, but it's going to take some compromise from from parties that traditionally don't mm-hmm. like compromise. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of that in the game, for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, Paul, does it excite you? In fact, I just want to go back one step before I change the subject because in episode two, Simon, you mentioned the fact that if we're going to have an international game, which is the pinnacle of our sport, then you have to have the best players in the world playing international rugby. You, you mentioned the rugby league model, which might not be perfect, but at least when international rugby league hits a stage, when a World Cup is happening, you make sure, by hook or by crook, you fit the best players into some team if they're deserving of playing. We have a situation where some of the best rugby players in the world, by virtue of eligibility laws uh, or club commitments, are not getting the chance to play international rugby. Um, TJ... Is there a feeling amongst New Zealand players about, let's just throw a name in the hat, a, a Charles Piatel, for instance, and should he be entitled to star on the world stage given the calibre of player we're talking about? 
Yeah, I think so. I think um, you shouldn't, in my personal view, is you shouldn't be allowed to... There's going to be a difference of opinion here. I can see it, bro. <laughs> I shouldn't be allowed to... Oh, oh, you, you picked a hell of an issue. So <laughs> <laughs> and then go in, like, um, play for, I don't know, uh, South Africa, for example, who is a country that I have no... Um, birthright to or anything like that, no heritage to. But if I am of Tongan descent and I play for the All Blacks, I should be able to wait, I think, a calendar year and then play for Tonga. I think so. I shouldn't be able to pick another team and get like um, rights that way, just a random team. But if I have um, birthrights here, if I have heritage there, I think, yeah, it, it could be good. What about you, Sarah? I mean, I know it doesn't seem to be as, as big an issue in the, in the women's game, but, but from a, a rugby point of view, would you agree that, that having players able to represent more than one country through heritage status or otherwise is a good move? Oh, to be honest, I, I'm actually not too sure. I, like, I would love to see, like you say, the the best players in the world playing. Um, but then it comes back down to like them making their own decisions. Um, and obviously, players have made decisions to go and, and not stay in New Zealand. And um, if we're thinking about it, that one particular player, but I, I find it hard to judge. I, I don't, I don't know. I have never been in that position, um, so it's yeah, it's, it's a pretty difficult one for me to, to answer. Straight I recognise. I was straight back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually was through to the keeper. Yeah. I think. Have you played cricket, Sarah? <laughs> I, I, I recognise that smile on Conrad Smith's face. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the smile he gets when he when he knows he wants to say something, but he's not sure he can. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I'm actually the same as TJ, and I and there was if we want to go into the the this homecoming clause, which was um, put forward to World Rugby a few years ago, it was only just missed out, and it would allow guys to go back if they had genuine ties. Um, to a country um, and they served a certain amount of time and it was just a once-off. Obviously, you know, you can't change more than once. Um, then, you know, I, I see I see room for that. The, the one thing, and I suppose it's in, my, in, in the work and trying to get a, you know, united player voice on this, you then talk to guys from Argentina or Canada and they're actually really against this for the obvious reason that, you know, what are the, for them, you know, they're bringing up all this homegrown talent. They don't want to see some, you know, these Pacific Islands because that's generally who will benefit mostly from, from a clause like this. They're sort of saying, and, that, and that's what sort of, to me, when I heard them speak about it and against it, it, it sort of um, pulled, bit, pulled me back a little bit. But um, so those things, it's a, it's a tricky issue. I, I still think there's room for a, a clause because it won't get used a lot there. If it's five or six players, a Charles Piatau, a few others, um, a Victor Vito, you know, if he serves a long time and really wants to go back and they're really going to help the nation, they're really going to grow the game. I think there's room for that, but um, it, it is it, when you start looking and talking to other countries, and there's a few few other issues to weigh up. But Sumo, this is the thing. Like I get that, and of course the players, and we we look at it differently because we're Kiwis and we're used to um, you know the demographics within our sport, and we understand. You know, like it always frustrates me when the English say, "Oh, you go and raid the islands or whatever," and it's like, "Well, mate." Most of them were born here now generationally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they do look at it differently. But for me, it, it, I mean, the Canadians, the Argentinians, et cetera, I get that. I get their point of view. But they don't, 
if we want to grow the game, this is the exact issues we have. It's self-interest. Everything in rugby and our inability to change or make decisions comes back because everyone goes, oh, well, it doesn't suit them and we get their point of view or whatever. But this comes back to the all the points about putting something better to market or whatever. And we had the discussion the other day. It was around the commercial side of it. And if rugby is going to be the pinnacle, if rugby, a test match rugby, sorry, is going to be the pinnacle, why are we not allowing the best players to play in it? Why do we have a World Cup where we don't have the best players in the world playing? From a pure commercial sense, I just it just seems... And if we can all align on that and go, yep, OK, well, we've got a good guess, Snakey says, it's compromise, but we're compromising to make a better product. We're compromising to keep teams more uh, teams in the competition longer so that we actually have genuine conversations about which 10 teams are going to win the World Cup, not which of the five or six. Um, you know, that, that's that's where I come from. I get the, the, the human side of it, but um, to take rugby forward, we've got to get past self-interest. All right, guys. Well, here's a, here's a way to end this conversation. I mean, and, I, and it doesn't feel like an hour's <laughs> passed. I mean, it's incredible listening to you all and your insights, but... I just wanted to finish like we did with our first episode with, with, a, with a little statement from you all about where you see the game right now and, and where you want it to go. And, and if, um, Sarah, I can start with you, just, just summing up where, where you think you're at, where the women's game at, where rugby is at, and, and what is on your hit list of things to achieve in the very near future? I think we're at, I think we're at a good point, um, but I think, like I said before, it, we need to grow, um, and that growth has to has to happen um, like pretty soon if we're going to continue, uh, especially in the, not just in the women's sense, but the sevens as well. Um, and I think with this, COVID gives us an opportunity to um, to market ourselves in New Zealand and, and to be able to play in New Zealand. And I think that's that's really important for us. Um, and then also with the with the Sevens World Series, um, I think there, there's an opportunity um, there as well. But I think us being, especially this year, we were able to play six six um, tournaments alongside the men. And for us, having that actually boosted, um, I think, our game a lot more because we weren't able to have that, the crowds, and obviously there, there, there comes a lot of different things. So I think we're at a good place. I think it needs to there needs to be a lot more growth in it, um, and I'd definitely be trying to push for that growth over the next couple of years in our sport. Conrad, from a, a more globalised point of view, as someone who's working in management now in French club rugby, also your club has its eyes in different markets too, and you're, and you're so well-versed in New Zealand rugby. Where, where do you see it from your point of view right now? Um, well, to be honest, if I were given a, you know, back to what I said right at the start, I think um, it's a, potentially it's exciting um, for rugby, but at the moment, we're at the mercy of something way bigger than rugby, you know, and um, until that all gets sorted out, like, like it's hard for most people to talk too much about, about rugby. You know, you, you sort of go in your little room and you plan, but then you come out, like this is the exact experience for us at the moment. We plan a pre-season, but we know it's all on, you know, bigger things at the moment and we, we weigh on government directors and 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 that's just the reality up here in Europe. So I, I, I suppose that's the that's the position um, where I'm coming from at, at this point in time. TJ, what's exercising your mind, TJ Pinella? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we had a really cool spot for our opportunity at Super Rugby level to bring the like some real excitement back into 
um, Hurricanes versus Blues, Hurricanes versus Crusaders, Hurricanes versus Chiefs, and that real big rivalry there because we're going to be playing each other a lot over the next little while. So Snakey's touched on the point where, I don't know if we're going to be playing in front of fans or anything, but the point where they were selling out um, NPC games, and that's that's an awesome thing to, to try and aspire to, to do. And I think we've got an opportunity because we're going to be playing this local competition to really get those uh, get grudges, for like a better word, going because we're going to be playing each other a lot. There's going to be a lot of people around the country who support the Canes, for example, um, who will be seeing us play against all of the other teams week in, week out, which I think could bring some really cool um, energy around the sport and, and in our country, you know, which will be fun. You spoke about going back to clubs. You spoke about tribalism in episode one. Can we recreate that in Super Rugby? Uh, has has the horse not bolted? <laughs> I think I, I think it would be awesome if we. I don't know what next year is going to look like either. But if there's an opportunity to play more home games against each other, man, I, I see um, I see it being like awesome for the country and awesome for the people who support us because they want to be at those sorts of games. They want to see. Um, Bodie play the Hurricanes, for example. That's a game that people want to go out and see. And we, if we can get more of that sort of stuff, more of those sort of rivalries, it's only good for the game. Oh, you get a chance to see them up close soon enough. Yeah, I'm, I'll be I'm looking predict- forward to that. I'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, pred- I'm predicting a lot of yellow cards in the opening rounds of Super Rugby Aotearoa, that's for sure. Ports, you know, over the last three episodes, mate, we've had the pleasure to listen to, you know, people at, at the real pointy end of our game. I mean, if there's one way to sum up the last three episodes of conversations, what would it be? Um, well, I just think it's just been great to facilitate conversations, you know, and particularly this one. Like, this has been awesome just sitting here and watching three really smart, intelligent people who advocate for their game and their peers. And I say the game, the, the greater game. Um, we've got these people in the game. They want to advocate for the game and it's great to be able to see them have the conversations. And they're, and everyone's sitting there thinking about these things and it's just, um, you know, that's all we're trying to do is spark the conversation and hopefully they can uh, carry on happening for a while yet. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to have a bonus conversation coming up too because uh, we're extending to an episode four. We've got a couple of provincial rugby CEOs and a CEO out of the heartland as well who have enjoyed these conversations and would love to put their views across to you, our viewers as well. So we can't wait for that. Sarah Hidani, TJ Pedernato, Conrad Smith, thank you so, so much for joining us on Rugby Unwrapped. Simon, thanks to you and to Halo Sport for presenting this chat. And we'll catch up with episode four soon enough. Cheers, everyone. Thank you. Cheers, Scotty. Thanks, team. And that was Rugby Unwrapped, brought to you by The Spin-Off and Halo Sport. Rugby Unwrapped was produced by Maddie Walker, Eddie Fifield, Amber Easby, Duncan Greve, Scotty Stevenson and Andrew McDowell. This episode of Rugby Unwrapped was made possible by the support of the Spinoff members. If you'd like to support our work, donate today at thespinoff.co.nz slash members. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spinoff. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a spin-off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Kia ora e te iwi, Kia Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.